So every now and then, I get asked, what is your favorite verse? Or, Brian, what's your favorite passage in the Bible? Now, I understand the question. There are a lot of great verses. There are a lot of great passages in the Bible. Uh, but truth be told, I struggle with this is my one and only favorite, or this is the one that speaks to me the most. Typically, when I'm doing a preaching series, I will absolutely love the book or the passage or the section that I'm kind of preaching through just because I'm studying it and I'm, I'm learning so much more from it. But if you really pressed me and said, Brian, kind of one or two of your all-time favorite passages or verses, what's in there? I might not be able to tell you what the number one is. But I would say for sure, today's passage is one of those ones that is right up near the top of the list. Today, as we continue preaching through or continue journeying through the book of Luke, uh, the gospel account of Jesus Christ by Luke, the physician, who has studied and researched the life and the ministry and the testimony and the witness to Jesus, and who now shares it, as he does this, we get to today's passage. Simply Luke chapter 15. Now, in Luke chapter 15, if you've been with us over the last couple of weeks, ordinarily during our service, somebody gets up and reads the passage of Scripture before we preach into it. And you would have noticed that today we're not doing that. And for the simple reason that Luke 15 is quite a long passage, and there's a lot in there. Uh, it's a well-known passage of Scripture. One of the reasons why I love this particular chapter, this particular passage of Scripture, is it's one of the few times when Jesus tells a story, he tells a parable, uh, but he tells three in a row that all cover the same topic. Jesus seldom does that. You know, Jesus is telling parables all the time. He's telling stories. He's teaching the crowds and speaking into these different topics. But this is one of the few times where Jesus addresses the same theme through three stories, one in a row. Uh, and kind of one of the reasons why I love it as well is it's just the context. Uh, you know, Jesus, as we'll see in the passage in a moment, Jesus is surrounded by the supposed sinners, uh, those who, you know, good Jewish individuals certainly wouldn't associate with. Yet Jesus surrounds himself with these tax collectors, these sinners, and he, he eats with them and he has fellowship with them. And, and of course, the religious authorities, the Pharisees, the scribes, the rulers, they just cannot stand that. And so they grump and they, they kind of moan about this and point this out. And, and Jesus does what Jesus does best. He confronts them and, and rebukes them by telling these incredible stories. And it's it's these three parables that deal with this idea of something being lost. Uh, you know, a lot of people will read through Luke 15 and think, oh, okay, there are three stories. There's this parable of a lost sheep. There's this parable of a lost coin. And then there's the parable of the lost son or the prodigal son. And, and we kind of typically separate those into three things. Yet when we look at this whole chapter, it becomes apparent that for Jesus, Although it's three little images and three little stories, it's one theme. And right up front, it's that incredible theme that those who are far off from God matter to God. 
In fact, it's those who are far off from God. It's the very reason that God came to earth to reconcile those who are far off. Uh, so when we read through the scripture that, you know, for God so loved the world that he gave his son, this is particularly what Jesus is driving home. Those who are far away, those people matter to me. And I will do everything in my power to reach out to them, to reach them and to reconcile them. You know, when we look at this passage of scripture and we see the lost sheep and the lost coin and the prodigal son, uh, we don't like that word lost especially in relation to a person. Let's admit it. Let's just kind of right up front. Nobody likes to admit they're lost. I certainly uh, have never been lost in my life. I may have occasionally taken the scenic route to get where I wanted to get to, uh, or maybe I took a little longer than I had initially planned, but don't ever tell me I'm lost. Don't ever tell me to stop and ask for directions. Humanity doesn't like to be called lost. Yet that's the word that Scripture uses in reference to those who are far off from God. But it's not used in this negative sense. It's not used in a, oh, well, there's the lost, forget about them. No, Jesus has this this sympathy. Jesus has this concern. Jesus is moved to such an extent that Jesus goes, because they are lost. I will do everything in my power to reach them. And so as we contemplate those who wander through life far off from God, I don't know where you might land in terms of how you connect to God. I don't know how you might identify in terms of whether you're a Christian or not or journeying with God or not. Uh, I kind of have this view that I think everybody is on a journey with God at some point. They may or may not know it. And so this morning, regardless of today, regardless of where you find yourself on that journey with God, I hope that you will see and be blown away by this incredible grace and this incredible love from our Heavenly Father that God would do everything and anything in His power to reach you. And my prayer is today that the Holy Spirit would speak to you through Luke chapter 15. And maybe you would fall in love with this passage, but not only in this passage or with this passage, but maybe that you would fall in love with God himself as you are reminded of his love for you. If you have your Bibles, you're welcome to follow along in Luke chapter 15, uh, reading from the the New International Version. And in verse 1 of Luke 15 We read, now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Now, I I need to pause here for a moment. When we read through scripture and we read about tax collectors, I think sometimes we miss some of the imagery of just what scripture speaks about. You and I might have coming into our mind maybe a a CRA agent just merrily doing their job. Uh, We might not like them all that much. We might not like what they do all that much. But we understand there's a policy, there's a reason, and they have to take taxes from us because the taxes are what pay for education or health or uh, the road repairs or whatever else it might be. And so we kind of get it. We don't like it, but it's a necessary one, and we go on with it. 
But tax collecting in Jesus' time and these days in the nation of Israel was not in the same way that it is today. Typically, those who collected tax from the Jews, from the children of Israel, they were some of the most corrupt individuals. They were wealthy, and they were wealthy because they were corrupt. They were often seen as traitors, as enemies of the people of Israel, because they served the Roman oppressors. They served those who sat over them. And tax collectors in Jesus' day would typically exploit more than what they were supposed to. Because they knew if they took more from you than what they owed or what they were supposed to give back, they could keep the difference. And so tax collectors would look at imports and exports. They would look at what you were trading. They would open your mail, so to speak, just to see. And then they would arbitrarily slap some figure on, and they would extort that figure and demand that figure. And, of course, you had to pay that, because if you didn't pay that, you ran the risk of being jailed. And you would then be fined and have to pay or far more. And so the Pharisees weren't the only people who looked at tax collectors and despised them. They were considered the worst of the worst. And here Jesus is with these tax collectors. And Jesus welcomes them. And Jesus speaks to them. And of course the Pharisees are upset. They're angry at this. How could the supposed Messiah, how could the supposed great teacher hang with these who are sinners and dirty? And Jesus knows this. So Jesus responds in verse chapter 3. Then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. And Jesus kind of resorts so often to these short stories, these parables that, des- that are designed to communicate an incredible spiritual truth or a moral lesson or a religious principle. It's this figure of speech in which truth is illustrated by comparing something alongside something else. And so as Jesus uses the symbolism and the symbolic language, he's illustrating a particular truth. And so he will use a familiar custom or incident or practice to illustrate the truth of what he's trying to say. Of course, there were times that Jesus would use parables to reveal truth to those who were following him. And at the same time, use those parables to conceal truth to those who did not follow him. And so his parables fulfill the prophecy spoken about in Isaiah chapter 6, verses 9 to 10, that Jesus speaks through parables. And these parables are almost like a double-edged sword. They cut in two ways. They enlighten those who are searching for truth and who want to know. And at the same time, they blind those who are disobedient 
and who are not truly interested in the truth. And so in this first parable of the lost sheep, God, Jesus uses an animal familiar to the audience of the day. You and I kind of might not always gauge when we kind of think about sheep. Uh, they're not a common animal in our lives. We're not surrounded by them. But for those who engage with, those who herd and farm and take care of sheep, sheep are often just known as this exceedingly dim-witted, you know, we could use the word dumb animal. Apparently, sheep don't have a lot of sense. And so there are times in Scripture where Jesus and Scripture uses the picture of the sheep to illustrate humans and to illustrate our spiritual condition. And so this parable tells a story. There's a sheep that's wandered off. Perhaps on its own, it's kind of taken one step at a time, and without knowing it, it's ended up lost. And so Jesus leaves the 99 behind in safe pasture to go after the one. Jesus sees the plight of the one. He doesn't sit back and go, well, you know what? 99 is a good return. It's okay to have having lost one. It doesn't matter. It's not the end of the world. No, Jesus says, I was given a hundred. I refuse to lose even one that in its own stupidity wanders off. I will go and find that one. And there's this spiritual element to the story Jesus is saying. Jesus sees the plight of those who are lost. Jesus sees the plight of sinners who are far off, and Jesus goes after. Jesus seeks out those who are lost in order to find them and save them. And we read that in Luke 19, verse 10 as well. Jesus shows, and as he's giving this little parable in the story, he shows, I care about the lost. The Pharisees, you who I am talking to, you do not. I will do whatever it takes to find that one sheep, wherever that sheep might be. And so Jesus goes, and he finds the sheep. And and when he finds the sheep, just like this shepherd, he lays the sheep on his shoulder, and he rejoices. You know, it's that image of a sheep that got itself into some trouble and is now exhausted and confused and lost and, and just needs the protection of its shepherd, of that one that was supposed to care for it. It it just needs the rescue. And it's used all its energy to get there. It can't walk all the way back. And so Jesus puts the the shepherd, sorry, puts the sheep over his shoulder. He doesn't mind the burden because to him it's a reason to rejoice. And so he goes home and he rejoices. He calls, the shepherd calls his friends and neighbors, come and have a party with me. The sheep that was lost has been found. And of course, the shepherd in this parable of Jesus is the Lord Jesus Christ. And we are the sheep. And we often and routinely get ourselves into trouble. We get lost. Jesus is not prepared to even lose one Out of a hundred, he will go and he will find it. And he will put that sheep on his shoulder and bring the sheep back to safe pasture. And the image, of course, being that Jesus is able to save anyone and everyone. 
There is no sheep that is too far gone for the Lord Jesus Christ. He will go wherever he needs to go to bring back the one. And then Jesus, not content to leave the story there or leave the parable there, Jesus continues in verse 8. Or suppose a woman has ten silver coins and loses one. Doesn't she light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And so Jesus has just given this parable of the lost sheep. And yes, that would resonate with a number of people in the audience. But Jesus is aware that his audience isn't just men or isn't just shepherds. There are a number of people, including women, in his midst. And so he wants to communicate. And he gives this image of a woman who loses a valuable coin, one of her ten coins. Matthew chapter 20 says it, it's worth about a day's wage and, and maybe even a little bit more. And as we read this and we understand the context, this coin is one of two things. It's either a literal coin and it's a symbol of 10% of her wealth. Now, I don't know about you, but to lose 10% of your wealth and be able to, to know, okay, it's somewhere in my house. I'm going to have to turn this place upside down. If you've ever done that, trying to find a set of car keys uh, or maybe an important legal document that you know is in the house somewhere and you turn that place upside down, then you know what this woman has gone through. So it's either a coin as part of her finances or the coin could refer to a piece of jewelry that woman wore as a headdress in the day. It was a symbol and formed part of her dowry. So the issue isn't only the value of the coin, it's the associated shame in having lost part of that headdress. And so Jesus pictures this woman living in in really a a peasant's house, this simple and humble home, perhaps with a low doorframe and no windows. And so to find the coin in that house, she lights a lamp and she sweeps the dusty floor, listening for that unmistakable clink of a coin searching everywhere, and then eventually she finds it. And because she finds it, her joy knows no bounds, so she rushes to tell her friends to say, come and rejoice with me. I found my coin. And Jesus then applies this parable by declaring the joy that the angels in heaven share together with God when even one sinner returns in repentance to him. And of course, those Self-righteous Pharisees, those scribes, those rulers of the law, they clearly lacked that joy. But God's gracious acceptance was wonderful news to the ordinary woman and men who heard him in these parables. You know, the, there's a little point worth noting here in the parable. I, I don't want to dive too dig and uh, sorry, dive too deep into the parable and, and maybe go where it doesn't cover. But a point worth noting is that the coin is lost right at home. You know, there might be those of you watching today who are members of a, of a good church, maybe members of our church or some other church. People may indeed be members of churches and still be lost. 
The sheep may have had a vague idea it was lost, but that coin has no clue, no knowledge of being lost. You and I need to learn to search not only for the sheep, but for the coins and search for those who even know that they're separated and lost from Christ. And Jesus then continues in verse 11. Jesus continues, there was a man who had two sons. And, and I love the movements. He tells the simple parable of a lost sheep and asks the question, the rhetorical question. Then he moves into another simple parable of this woman who's lost a coin. But this one, he kind of first sets the scene and he begins to paint the picture and he says there was a man with two sons. And, and of course, that should bring to mind some image of a, of a home, of a house. And we know as we're reading through, well, the first two, that individual is illustrative of Jesus. So this man must and can only be our heavenly father. And so we have this image of this glorious home. A home that has all the comforts, all the joys, all the love that ever went into a home or that anyone would ever want. And so this father who has this home doesn't only have a home, but he, he has two sons. One of these boys is the older brother and the other called the younger. So you can kind of see that painting, this picture. Here stands a father with his two sons. But then Jesus puts more paint to the picture. And in verse 12 and 13, he says, The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. So here's this picture. This picture of, a, of this beautiful home, this home where everything that anybody could want existed, love, joy, fellowship, comforts. Yet this young boy, this younger brother does something strange. He, he sort of says, you know, I'm tired of this discipline. I'm, I'm tired of these rules over me. I, I want to stretch my wings. I want to find myself. I want to fly. And you know what? I look out over the hills and, and I see these towns. And, and you know what? The grass looks mighty fine and much greener on those sides of the hill. Now, I don't know why that's true, but doesn't the grass always look greener on the other side? And so the boy kind of looks out and he says, if only I could get out there and be on my own. That would be wonderful. That would be much better than being at home. And so he says to his father, Father, give me my portion of the inheritance. And there's an image that we lose, perhaps, in our understanding these days. But typically an inheritance is only given when somebody passes away. And so this boy, in effect, is saying, Dad, you know what? It would be better for me if you were dead and I just had my portion. So, yes, you're dead to me. Give me what should be mine. And so his father, rather than chasing him out, rather than rebuking him or disciplining him in his love, does exactly that. He divides the inheritance. He's a generous father, and so he gives it to his son. And his son, quite probably, quite Possibly sells it all so that he's got his bag of money. And then he goes 
to this far off land. And he spends all the money. And the boy found out what it was like to have a a bag full of money. and, And he found out what it was like to enjoy what the world calls a good time. He, in modern days, goes to all the nightclubs, has all the money. And of course, when you have money, you get fair weather friends. And so he has these friends, and for a time he's lived it up. He's celebrating with wine, woman, and song, and he's enjoying the pleasures of sin for a season in this far-off country. And of course, Jesus doesn't give the actual details of what goes on. He doesn't need to. Our minds can fill in those blanks. We can see the, 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 kind of the, the waste and as this child spends all this money on, on wild living. Living it up. But of course, we all know the money is finite. And there will come a day when that son will reach into his pocket and that pocket is empty. There are no more coins. Verse 14 says, After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in the whole country. And he began to be in need. Not only is the son now in a bad way financially, but the country has fallen into hard times. And the very country where he thought the grass was greener, well, the grass is now dying. It is brown. They're having a famine, and the son does not know what to do. So Jesus picks up in verse 15. So he went out and hired himself to a citizen of that country, who sent him to his fields to feed the pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. So finally, the son gets to the edge of town. He has no money. He's hungry. He's destitute. He's nothing. And so he finds a man raising pigs. And he asks this man for a job, and this man sends him out to care for the pigs. And that son, along with the audience, would have winced at that. You see, the only people who farmed pigs were Gentiles, because a pig was an unclean animal to any good Jew. You didn't associate, you didn't touch, you didn't go near to pigs, let alone to Gentiles. Yet here the son goes and works for this Gentile, and he is feeding pigs out in the fields. And of course, these pods, these husks, it's probably the fruit of a carob tree, which was plentiful and common in Syria and Egypt, which produced this little pod that kind of filled with seeds and had a bit of a sweetish taste. And of course, it was used by food, it was used as food by the poor, not only for pigs. Here the son is, feeding pigs, longing to eat their food. So we read in verse 17, When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I I love that. When he came to his senses, when he came to himself, and he took the first step. In repentance. That first step was the realization that where he was was the wrong place. He was far off. 
And this is so often the problem with sin is that it looks so good from a distance and it it looks so appealing and we find ourselves drawn to it and attracted to it and we fall into it. There comes a point when we hit the bottom and we realize that it is terrible and it only brings death and hunger. And when we're at that bottom point, when we come to our senses, that's when we begin by making the right choice by stepping out in repentance. And the son understands his father's hired servants do better than what he does. And so in his intelligence or in his repentance, he acknowledges, you know what? I am my father's son and his servants are better off than me. I will go back to him. So we read in verse 18, I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. As that boy is sitting feeding pigs and hungrily looking at their food, it brings back the memories of what he's left from home. In his father's house. Jesus speaks about his father's house in John 14 verse 2. And he says, in my father's house there are many rooms. There's place, there's feasting, there's celebration. And so the son realizes, in my father's house is a better place than over here. In my father's house even the hired hands are taken care of. What am I doing? Out here. And so he gets up and he plans to go back to his father. And we read in verse 20 So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. You know, in Jesus' day, a father didn't run. No, children ran. Wicked people ran. A good father carried himself with respect and with dignity. He, after all, was the head of the household. Others ran to him. And Jesus shows that my heavenly father is not beyond this extravagant display. And he will run to him. And his father runs to him. He's in rags. He he still stinks as pigs do. He smells. And yet the father hugs him, embraces him, and kisses him. And then that little speech that the son has been practicing in his head the whole way, the whole time. In verse 21, the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And as he's kind of saying this, as he's saying to his father, don't call me son. Call me rather a hired hand. One who has no legal rights anymore, but but at least I can find protection and perhaps some food and, and some shelter. I'm not your son anymore. But the father, I love this picture, the heavenly father simply interrupts his son. In verse 22, but the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. 
For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and he is found. So they began to celebrate. And and I kind of love this imagery. The son wanted feasting and celebration. He wanted freedom. He wanted to find himself. But the very things he was looking for existed in his father's house. There existed love and feasting. He didn't have to go all the way to the pig pen. But in that place of the pig pen, he begins his journey of repentance. And he comes back to his father and he acknowledges, I've sinned against you. And we read in 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, If we confess our sins... He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This is the picture Jesus puts out. When we repent, when we confess our sins to our heavenly Father, He is gracious and He extends forgiveness, but He goes so much more and He goes beyond just forgiveness. He lavishes onto His child. His child wanted to be a hired servant, just a slave in the house. And his father says, no, you are forgiven and you're given a robe and a ring and a sandals. You know, the best robe was a position. Sorry, it was a sign of position. A best robe signified I am part of this family and this household. And that ring indicates authority. It acknowledges he is a full-grown son with the rights that go along with sonship. And the sandals are a sign of freedom and luxury. They're what separate the bare feet of a slave to the son of a father. And of course, meat was not ordinarily eaten at every single meal. So this image of the fattened calf was the sign of a special occasion. The celebration that the son of mine that was lost has returned and is now back in the family. And I love the little twist that Jesus adds. He's just told three parables, one in a row, pointing out how far Jesus will go, how far the heavenly Father will go to find that which is lost. But remember, Jesus is telling this parable to the Pharisees as well, to those who did not share joy. Those who were not gracious to the outcast. Those who did not care about the lost and the sinners. Those who would far rather judge. And Jesus speaks to them in the closing verses of Luke chapter 15. Meanwhile, verse 25, meanwhile, the older son was out in the field. When he came near to the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him, what's going on? Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. And the older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. And this is the twist, because at this moment, which son is really lost? Is it the younger son back under the roof enjoying fellowship and restored to the family? Or is it the older brother outdoors angry, angry at hearing the news that his brother has returned? And in his anger, he refuses to go in. And he waits, and his father comes out to him and pleads with him. 
The oldest son, of course, represents the scribes and the Pharisees. It represents those whose attitude about restoring sinners is one of resentment and anger. The oldest son has been about his responsibilities in the field all day long, and he has no idea his brother has returned. And rather than rush in at the sound of dancing and feasting and celebration, he stays outside. And already you sense that reluctance, that reluctance to get in. But of course, curiosity doesn't prevent him from calling one of the servants. And so as the sermon explains to him, he gets angry. And from a spiritual point of view, it refers, of course, to the salvation of those who are lost. And a sinner who has been saved, one who is lost, has been found, is restored to the family. Yet Pharisees do not celebrate. They do not join in. So in verse 29, but he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never even gave me a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, don't you love that? Not when my brother, when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said. You are always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. You know, the older son misunderstood the nature of his father's mercy. He could only acknowledge the return of his brother as this son of yours. Even his language, all these years I've slaved for you. I've slaved for you, my father. And you haven't given me something to celebrate with. Meanwhile, this son of yours who goes out and squanders it on prostitutes and wild living, you forgive that and you celebrate that? This older brother and, of course, the younger brother, They are both pictures of every person on this earth in need of a savior. It's almost ironic when we read this story of this prodigal son, this lost son. Everything that this son sought far off in the countries away was right at home. There was abundance. There was freedom. There was rejoicing. There was celebration. And the father has to point this out to the older son as well. Everything I have is yours. Of course, God himself gives his children everything they need. And we who receive his, his forgiveness can and should extend that forgiveness to others. We can say to those who've disappointed us, to those who've hurt us, to those who've angered us, we can say, I understand forgiveness because God has had mercy on me and forgiven me. Therefore, I forgive you and I extend mercy and forgiveness to you. I no longer hold it over you. And in the midst of forgiveness, this is why the father says to the older brother, we had to celebrate. Don't you get it? This brother of yours, the son of mine, was dead. He was lost. He was far off. And it's as though he is back to life with us. He is alive and he is found and we must celebrate 
together. So what then is the theme of these three parables? Clearly, in this last one as well, the Father symbolizes the Heavenly Father who extends to each child, to each one of us, whether we might believe we are prodigal and far off or whether we are still like the older brother under the roof. This Heavenly Father extends to us unconditional grace and forgiving love. This Father's part pictures a God's love for lost sinners. And the lost son in his repentance returns, returns to his father who extends grace. But not only to the lost son. Jesus in telling these parables turns to the Pharisees and says forgiveness and grace is on offer to you as well. All you need do is accept and walk in to your father's house and receive along with the rest who are receiving it. So how do we wrap up? What's the application from a story like this? Well, of course, the initial application is to worship and celebrate. This is our Heavenly Father, a God who cares for everyone. My friends, I don't know where you are in your journey with God. You may well indeed believe that you are far off and and you are beyond salvation. You are beyond forgiveness. You are beyond the grace of God. These parables would tell us completely otherwise. These parables tell us that lost people, those who are far off from God, matter to God. I would add to that, not only do lost people matter to God, they should matter to you and I. If we call ourselves disciples disciples of Christ, if we call ourselves Christians, then those who are far off should matter to us as much as they matter to the Father. And in these parables, Jesus kind of points out not only do those who are lost or to that what is lost matter, well, it warrants an all-out search. And in the first two parables, that's what we see. There's an all-out search. The shepherd goes looking for the lost sheep, and the, the woman searches her entire house until she finds her coin. Uh, that which is lost is valuable and matters to God, and therefore it should matter to us, and therefore we should go and search as best we can. Then did you notice in all three parables, all three end in celebration and rejoicing. You and I need to get into the habit of celebrating and rejoicing when those who are far off from God receive grace and repent and turn and find salvation in Christ. We cannot be like the older brother going, Jesus, no, you cannot forgive that person. Look at the sin they've committed. Look at what they've done. We do not have that freedom. We need to join in the celebration. When I read through Scripture, when I read the image of heaven and what that will be like when we are with Christ in the presence of God for all eternity, I see a picture of a feast and a celebration that lasts for eternity. And each one of us, you and I, are invited to join into that feast and to join into that celebration. Why? Because we matter to God. And God did what God needed to do. He searched for you and for me. How did he search for us? Well, Paul writes in Philippians, 
that God being in very nature, Jesus, sorry, being in very nature, God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but instead made himself nothing, becoming as a servant, taking on the form of a human, taking on flesh. And not only that, but then going on to suffer on the cross, paying the penalty of our sin, paying the price that we could not pay so that we would receive what we did not deserve. What we receive is grace and mercy and forgiveness. I hope that as you read through these three parables, you would realize how much you mean to God. And regardless of where you are, whether you are under the roof of the house or in a distant land sitting in a pig pen, that you would get up and come to your heavenly Father. Because as you get up, in this image of the Father running, as you get up and as you step towards, know that God will race to you and meet you where you are at. And he will embrace and hug, and kiss, and forgive you, and extend his mercy and his love. May the Lord bless you as you contemplate this passage. Let's pray together. Jesus, as we read Luke 15, as we marvel in these three parables, I am blown away at the the lavishness of your grace and your love and your mercy. And I'm reminded that we use the word prodigal to talk about kind of wanton lavishness and just this excess, this unthinking excess. And I wonder if Tim Keller isn't right in saying that maybe it's God who is the prodigal one because it is God who lavishes grace and mercy and excess over us. And that though we were sinners and far off, indeed lost, Jesus, you came to find us. Oh, our Heavenly Father, that you extend love and forgiveness and mercy to us. And you watch from afar off. And as we come to our senses and we realize we're simply sitting in a pig pen eating pig food, we think we're living it up. Yet we are impoverished and hungry. And when we come to our senses and get up, even then, you run to us. And you meet us. You put us on your shoulder and you embrace us and you put a cloak around us and a ring on our finger and sandals on our feet. And you call for the fattened calf to be slaughtered so that we might celebrate and feast. Oh God, we are blown away at your love and grace. Help us, Jesus, to see what people mean to you. To see and understand the value of those who do not know you. That they matter to you. And they ought to matter to us. That you did whatever it took to reach them. and Therefore, so should we. Oh, Father, help us never become like the older brother who simply condemned and judged and who wanted no part of forgiveness. Let us not become like that because we do not want to miss that feast and that celebration. Holy Spirit, come and move in our midst and draw us deeper into relationship with you. 
We ask this in your name, Father. Amen. Amen. May the Lord bless you.